In the movie novel, where the crawdads sing, the central character is a girl named Kaya, who grows up in a marsh in North Carolina. She's, she's an orphan girl. When she's about seven years of age, so this would have been in so far as the setting of the novel in the 1950s, someone from the nearby town of Barkley Cove sees that she's living in a marsh and not going to school. So this woman approaches Kaya and tries to persuade her to go to school by saying, you'll get bologna sandwiches there at lunchtime. Well, Kaya is very hungry, and so she is persuaded. And so the very next day, she puts on her best dress, a dress that she herself has made. And she walks barefoot to school, full of excitement and hope. But when she gets to school, because she is barefoot, because she smells, because she is dirty and cannot read or write properly. She's teased by her classmates and even mocked by her teacher. Her teacher asks her to stand up in class, which she does, and spell the word dog. And Kaya stammers out the letters G-O-D. And all her classmates burst out laughing Feeling rejected, feeling humiliated, Kaya goes home before lunch, goes back to her beloved Marsh and never shows up at school again. As a seven-year-old girl, Kaya cannot form her sense of self independent of how her peers, her classmates, and her teacher respond to her. And as adults, we cannot form our sense of self either in a way that's independent of how people relate to us and respond to us. I know a pastor who is a very gifted preacher and very mature. But as he's driving home on Sunday after the service, if his wife doesn't bring up the message, he will ask, how was the message? And if she is critical, he says, I feel crushed. We never reach an age where our sense of self is completely independent of how others relate to us and respond to us. Our sense of self is always shaped by the people around us, especially those that we are closest to. It is in relationships where our sense of self is shaped Informed. It is in relationship where we learn shame, and it is in relationship where shame is undone. We're currently in a sermon series on what it looks like to live from our truest that is made in the image of God self as we experience greater freedom from toxic shame, a sense that we're not quite enough. When we don't like ourselves or when we feel that we are flawed in some way, and that may be a subconscious kind of awareness, then we try to become someone different. We project a false self. We either go small and become less than who we really are, or we try and go big 
in order to prove that we are somehow worthy. In this series, we are looking at how we can live from our truest selves, our made-in-the-image-of-God self, so that we exhibit the best qualities of a healthy and free child, so that we can say with May Sarton, the poet, now I become myself. It's taken time, many years and places. I've been dissolved and shaken, worn other people's faces. Now I become myself. Such a gift to be able to say, I've worn other people's faces, but now I become myself. How do we become our true self, the self that most reflects God's image? We experience this part of our core goodness as we deeply experience, not just know in our head about, but deeply experience the love of God. In a well-known verse in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, the Apostle John writes, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear, including the fear of rejection, which is at the very core of shame. In Ephesians chapter 3, in an important passage, the Apostle Paul prays these words. We also looked at this passage last, last week. We'll take it from a different angle today. Paul offers this prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches, God may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Living God, by your spirit, we pray that regardless of our circumstances, that you would supernaturally reveal how wide and long and high and deep is your love for us. And in the experience of that love, of your cherishing of us, may we be made new, may we be set free. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. We know that we can experience a powerful transformation, a freeing from our toxic shame, the shadow that darkens our life, when we experience more and more of the light and love of God. Last week, we considered Paul's prayer that we would know God's love more fully. And we looked at how we can experience God's love directly. Today, I want us to explore how we can experience God's love through others, through each other. In Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25, the writer pens these words. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another. Let us encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. Nancy Canwisher is a professor of cognitive neuroscience at MIT. 
And she points out that her research and the studies done by her colleagues demonstrate that when we see a human face, we can experience a real enhancement of our sense of well-being. Even if it's just a brief interaction with someone at a cafe, a brief hello uh, that we receive from someone or a smile as we're walking down a sidewalk, that brief interaction, seeing that person's face, can light up the parts of our brain associated with our experiencing a sense of well-being. And this is especially true, apparently, if you see a person's face in the morning or in the late afternoon. Not exactly sure why that's the case. Uh, But obviously, the closer we are to a person, the more we are in a relationship with that person, the more that that person's face and very being has the capacity to lift us and vice versa. I've shared this story with some of you, but I think it bears repeating in the context of this theme that we are exploring today. Back in November, I was in Cambodia with some members of our community, some members of our our, our team here at 10th and some uh, folks from one of the congregations. And we were on retreat with our ministry partners, the leaders of the, the ministries that we, we help walk alongside and support in one way or another. And during one of my talks at this uh, retreat place called Shalom Valley, I spontaneously asked the question, I don't think it was in my notes, imagine someone who has loved you into being. At the end of the retreat, Uh, We were having lunch around round tables and a Cambodian woman named Lakana approached me and asked, is it okay if I sit beside you? I said, sure, that'd be fine. She said, when you ask the question, who has loved you into being, a specific person came to mind and I'd like to tell you about what happened in, in my imagination. I said, great. And she said, in order to make the story meaningful, I need to give you some of my, 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 my background. I said, fine. She, she said, like, and I said, I was uh, born into and, and raised in a very, very poor family here in Cambodia. I was raised by a single mother. In fact, we were so poor that it was my chore growing up to scrounge through the neighbor's garbage bins looking for scraps of food so that we could eat. It was also my job to look through the neighborhood and try and find scraps of metal or plastic so we would have something to sell at recycling to generate a little bit of money. Laka then told me, as a young person I came to know Jesus and I was healed of my shame in part, but I wasn't fully healed and I know that I wasn't fully healed because I was always way too embarrassed to invite anyone to our house because it was so small and so shabby. And then I'm not going to explain, one day someone from our church, who was, originally part, who was originally part of your church in Vancouver, named Kevin Knight, who now lives in Cambodia, approached me, he, he was a friend, and said, uh, Lakana, could I come to your house? I'd like to meet your mom. And I said, no, 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 you, you really don't want to come to our house. And he said, but I do, I do, I really want to come to your house. And he kept asking and kept asking, and I said, I know, Kevin can be pushy. So I finally agreed and said, okay, you can come. Rather reluctantly, I agreed. And so Kevin came by the house, and I was hoping and praying that it would not rain because 
the roof in our home leaked terribly. And sure enough, as soon as he comes over, it starts pouring rain. And rain is leaking in everywhere. And my mom gets a bucket and puts it under the biggest leak. I'm getting bowls and plates to catch, catch water as it's leaking in other parts of our house. My mom shoves Kevin to the one little corner of our little home where it's actually dry. And I'm thinking as I'm trying to catch the water, Kevin must be really judging me. I look out of the corner of my eye and I see that there's no judgment coming from Kevin whatsoever. A few days later, Kevin comes back, he fixes the roof, and it's been good now for about 10 years. And then Kevin married me. Uh, I don't think it was right away um, after a suitable period of dating and so forth. Uh, But that's not necessarily the point of the story either. Um, But Lakana said, when you ask the question, who has loved you into being? I thought about Kevin Knight. And I wonder if you can imagine someone in your mind's eye who has loved you into being. It might not be a romantic partner. Maybe it's a friend or a family member or a teacher of some kind. If you can imagine that person, just bring them to your mind's eye and thank God for that person. And if you cannot, perhaps pray that God would bring such a person into your life. Each morning I take a walk through our neighborhood with our golden retriever, Sasha. And I bring to mind a handful of people who have loved me into being. And I thank God for those people. And their faces in my imagination become a window into how wide and how long and how high and how deep is God's love for me. And maybe you can do something similar where you regularly bring to mind the face of someone or the faces of people who have loved you into being, into who you are. And perhaps that person's face can become a window into how God feels about you, how God loves you, and make God's love a little more real to you. Another way we can experience God's love, perhaps somewhat unexpectedly, is through the practice of confession. Confession is not just a Catholic spiritual discipline. It is a biblical practice. Now, as we know, we're living in a time where there's a widespread experience of depression. And when a person feels depressed, they typically want to just stay in bed and hide under the covers when the very best thing might be for them to get out, go for a walk, maybe go for a bike ride. Or when a person feels depressed, maybe they just want to binge watch Netflix and eat a tub of ice cream. Some of you are saying, wait a minute, that's how I celebrate. (laughs) So that may be the case. Don't push this analogy too far. When the very best thing might be to connect with someone by phone or in person, when a person is feeling depressed, often the very best thing for that person to do is the very opposite thing they feel like doing, to engage in what Professor Arthur Brooks calls the reverse signal strategy. And so it is when we feel a sense of shame, a sense of not being quite enough. 
often the very best thing to do is the opposite thing we feel like doing, and that is confessing what we are experiencing or what we've done or haven't done to someone that we trust. In the book of James in the Bible, chapter 5, 16, we read scripture telling us through James, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. James doesn't say, just confess in your mind as you're walking to the communion table to God silently, but also confess to one another, to trusted people, and pray for each other that you may be healed. Brene Brown, the social science researcher and the, the, the scholar who specializes in shame research in particular, asks the question, what causes shame to grow exponentially? And then she answers her own question by saying, the research shows that what causes shame to grow exponentially is secrecy, silence, and judgment. And then Brown asks the question, what causes shame to evaporate? A ring to get your attention onto something else, perhaps. But certainly, empathy. A person's empathetic response, a response of understanding. And when we feel shame, the last thing we may want to do is confess that. But when we do that with someone else, someone that we trust, it can be so freeing. I know someone who grew up in a very conservative Christian home. His parents never drank a singular drop of alcohol. But when this person was grown, he himself was a committed Christian, but occasionally he would have a glass of wine or a beer. But one day, he, one evening, he was out with a friend, went to a bar, and had, as they say, a few too many, or a couple too many, I don't know how many too many. But he got drunk. He wasn't trying to get drunk, but he ended up getting drunk. He walks out of the bar, and he collapses and passes out. A little later, he ends up throwing up, getting really sick. And he felt all of this guilt and all of this shame. And not long thereafter, he was with a, a couple of Christian brothers, meaning people who share the same faith. And he felt like he needed to really confess what he had done. And so, hesitating and filled with a sense of dread and, 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 and stuttering, he, he coughed out what he had done. He confessed what he had done. And his friends offered no judgment. They simply responded with what felt like a visceral wave of love. Shame had reared its ugly head in this person's psyche, but love, the love of his friends, proved stronger yet. And when we confess our shame or our guilt, to someone, whether it's a trusted friend, a pastor, a spiritual director, someone in our small group, our life group, a soul trio, a group of three, uh, an AA group of some kind, uh, and the person says, I'm not going anywhere or welcome to the human race. There's something that's so freeing that lightens our burden and gives us a window into the very face of God. It allows us to see how God views us. That's why we encourage connection and, 
and, and, and not living in isolation. So much here at 10th. So we can experience the face of God, the grace of God, the face of God through others, through their faces, through the practice of confession. And finally, and this may seem a little bit unclear at first, but we can also experience God's love through others as we learn to love ourselves as we love others. Even have to read it because it's just not completely intuitive, is it? We can experience God's love as we love ourselves as we love others. I'll explain what that means in a moment. Dr. Peter Atia is a physician who is originally from Ontario. And he describes uh, how he grew up with a lot of shame and carried that shame into adulthood, a lot of self-hatred, in part because he was abused as a child. Doesn't go into detail as to how he was abused, but he, he mentions that he was. And in part, because of his self-hatred, he had this volcanic anger toward himself, but also toward other people. And his rage was getting so bad that he felt that he was on the verge of losing his marriage, his family, and even his medical practice. And because he felt like he was on the verge of losing everything that mattered to him, he actually checked himself into a residential treatment facility that helped people deal with their addictions. Most of the people at the facility were dealing with addictions to things like alcohol, drugs, sexual activities. But Peter was checking himself in because he knew he was addicted to his anger. So he goes through this residential treatment program. He does a lot of one-on-one therapy. And as a result, he says that he's gotten better at dealing with other people, but his rage toward himself remained just as strong, it seemed. So even when he was doing something enjoyable, like uh, shooting bows, he loved archery, he, he loves archery. If he would miss the target, he would just become enraged and grab it, an arrow and bust it over his knee. When he was doing something kind for his family, um, making them a special dinner, barbecuing something special, which ought to be a joyful activity, Peter said, if I misgrilled the steak, I would just start swearing at myself. What's, what's wrong with you? Why can't you grill everything? Steak. He would just go off on himself. And Peter said, I started to record the voice memos about, to myself on my phone. So I was, I was recording my rage directed toward myself as voice memos on my phone. And then I would send them to my therapist. And my therapist asked me the question, would you speak like that to your very best friend? And Peter responded, of course I wouldn't. I, I would be much more respectful. I would be much kinder. And then his therapist said, speak to yourself when you're enraged as though you were speaking to your very best friend. And so Peter began to try to do that. Every time he wanted to say something really cruel and cutting to himself because he was so enraged at himself, he would try to imagine that he was speaking to his 
very best friend, speaking to himself as though he were his very best friend. And over two or three months, that critical, cruel voice toward himself just got fainter and fainter and fainter. For some of us, it's easier to be kind. It's easier to be kind to someone else than it is to be kind toward ourselves. It's easier to show respect to others than it is to show respect to ourselves. And this reminds me of Jesus' great commandment, what he identified as the greatest commandments, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself. In this commandment where we're called to love God and love others, implicit in the commandment, assumed in the commandment, is that we are to love ourselves. We're to love others as we love ourselves. Assumption being, implicit command being, we are also to love ourselves. And as I said, for some of us, it's easier to be kind to someone else, easier to be kind to someone else than it is to be kind to ourselves. And it's as we receive God's kindness through the face of others, perhaps in response to our transparent confession of our failures and our weakness, that we can also learn to love ourselves more fully. And as that happens, we'll also be able to love God more fully and others more fully. Let me close with this. I've shared a version of this story with some of you before, but I'll bring out some other details. When I was making the transition from the corporate world to the world of vocational Christian ministry, I enrolled in something called the Arrow Leadership Program, which is a ministry that helps develop younger emerging Christian leaders. Craig also enrolled in it years years after me. The program was founded by Leighton Ford, a Christian leader originally from Toronto, and the brother-in-law to the late Billy Graham. When we first gathered as a class of about 25 of us there in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, it struck me that I was probably the youngest person in the group of 25 and certainly the least experienced in Christian ministry. And I was feeling insecure and wanting to prove to Leighton Ford, the founder, that he had not made a big mistake in admitting me to the program. I really wanted to impress him. Feeling insecure There was a part of me that wanted to go small and shrink back and not raise my hand in class and say something stupid. But there was another part of me that wanted to go big and try and prove myself. And so I remember our group of 25 or so being in front of a 100-foot cliff that we were about to ascend. It was not a competition. It was a team-building activity, but in my mind, I translated it into a competition. And I said to myself, I'm going to clock the fastest time to the top, the fastest time. I was trying really hard. And then as a, as a young Christian leader, I stumbled and fell, got into a conflict with someone that I, was, that I was working with because of my own emotional immaturity. It was failing in some other ways. And in my failure, this is what I learned about Leighton, that his love And his acceptance of me was not dependent on my performance. It was just there. He loved me just because. And now, 
more than 25 years later, the relationship has profoundly deepened and I feel more at home in my skin in his presence than ever before. I can laugh in his presence, cry in his presence. Um, it's not that I no longer want to make something out of my life in ministry, in part because of his investment in me, but it doesn't come out of an anxious need to try and prove anything. And this is what I hope and pray you will experience in your life with God. I hope and pray that you will know that God loves you without condition, that God loves you as you are, that God cherishes you. I hope and pray that you experience that love through others directly through his spirit. And as a result, I pray that while you give your best, while you seek to become your best, that you won't be striving to prove that you are worthy, to prove that you are enough, but that you will go for it, that you will offer your best, that you will become the masterpiece that God has created you to be out of a deep place of rest, of contentment, of gratitude, of joy that comes from knowing that you are already accepted and in fact cherished in the eyes of the one who matters most. Let's pray together. If you'd like, in your mind's eye, you can imagine the face of someone who's loved you into being, if there is such a person in your life. Or perhaps an act of kindness that demonstrated love. Just imagine that for a moment. as a window into God's care for you. And if nothing comes to mind, pray that God would bring such a person or such an act into your life. If you're able to do so, thank God for that person, thank God for that act. And if you've never done so and you'd like to, as we were singing earlier, you can offer yourself to God and trust your life to him and say, God, make me your daughter, make me your son. And as you do that, or if you've done that, receive these words from God, your perfect Father. You are my beloved daughter. And then hear God calling you by name. In you, I am well pleased. You are my beloved son. Hear the perfect Father calling you by name. In you, I am well pleased. You are my child. In you, I am well pleased. And in that love that comes directly to you, but also through others, may you know freedom, may you know lightness, may you know joy, and may you become who you really are in God's image. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.